0: Is there an arrow in your chest? You walked in the doors and you pretended like it wasn't there. Have you been wounded deeply by the enemy and you're pretending like you've got it all together? Has anybody. Here, been dealt a wound by the enemy. You have this arrow sticking out of your chest. Just this outpouring of authenticity. Would you raise your hand if that's you? I walked in here with an arrow in my chest. The enemy tried to kill you. But you're still standing. The hell tried to break you. But Jesus is still on the throne your king still reigns in heaven and there is no desperate thrashing from the enemy that can undo his doom which is spelled in the end. He cannot take the crown from Jesus' head. Jesus, your savior and your king remains on the throne. And everything that this enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, this enemy of yours who has come to steal and to kill and destroy, he has nothing on Jesus who has come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And everything, every device, every weapon that is formed against you will fail. Because Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus stands in victory now over the things that overwhelm us. And everything which the enemy has intended for evil, God may use for beautiful good. These are the words spoken by Joseph at the end of the book of Revelation. At the end of the book of Genesis. But Revelation ends the same way, doesn't it? Would you open your book books of your Bible to, to Genesis chapter 49, beginning in verse 28? If you're using the Bibles that are provided in the seats with you on page 43, there's no sane person who would blame Joseph for just succumbing to the bitterness and just letting it swallow him whole. Like there's no sane person that could blame Joseph for hating his brothers because they sold him into slavery. They abandoned him in a pit. They utterly forsook him. Moreover, did you consider this? They likewise dealt their father the greatest wound in this life. They convinced their father that his son was dead. And they let him believe that for years. No one on earth could blame Joseph for being bitter toward his brothers. It's quite reasonable, in fact. But Joseph shows no bitterness here. Our reading plan shows how he tricked them in order to get his youngest brother, Benjamin, to appear because he never happened to meet Benjamin. Our curriculum has covered Genesis 45, 1 through 15, and we're seeing the Lord bring about this divine reconciliation this story of healing and now it culminates here in the final chapter of the book of Genesis. These are the sons of Jacob as they appear in Genesis. Then we see how they influence the tribal allocations of the promised land here on earth throughout the Old Testament. And then we see this prophesied revival among the tribes of Israel, as they're named in the last book of the Bible, so these are the these are the sons of Jacob. Jacob, at this point in Genesis, has just finished speaking respective blessings over each of his sons. They're named here. And these influence the names of the tribes of Israel over whom revival is prophesied in the last book of the Bible. Did you know that God is the Alpha and he is the Omega? He is the beginning and the end. He exists outside of time itself and his Bible, which opens with this book of Genesis, describes the beginning and he already stands in victory at the end over all of it. Knowing how it ends, the sovereign author over all of it, bringing, everything to a beautiful conclusion in which evil is forever destroyed and God himself reigns in victory over sin, over death, over hell forevermore. This is God's proclaimed will. We've just read the first book of the Bible and we meet the fallen imperfect and even treacherous sons of Jacob through whom God is working to bring about something beautiful and good and eternal that passes through our lifetimes and resonates in the coming book of Revelation. These are the sons of Jacob. He's just finished speaking his blessings over them and now Jacob is about to die. Look at the last words of Jacob with me. In Genesis 49, 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people then joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him and joseph commanded his servants the physicians to embalm his father so the physicians embalmed israel 40 days were required for it for that is how many days are required for embalming and the egyptians wept for him 70 days And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh saying, my father made me swear saying I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim, and it is beyond the Jordan." Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers Joseph lived 110 years and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Why the embalming, and why the coffin? Jacob and Joseph are the only two people in the Bible to be embalmed. In part, it's because of the cultural influences of the common practice of the Egyptians. And why the coffin? Because it's easier to carry to the promised land for pragmatic purposes, to transport these bones because both believed, despite all the evidence to the contrary, despite their comparatively small number, and despite the fact that all the land of Canaan was overcome with with pagan nations, they believed that all of it, likewise, would one day belong to God's people. That was the land that God had promised to the nation that would be born through Abraham, and so they said, place my bones there. Go back and look at the text. Look at chapter 49's final, final verses. And see all this discussion about this field of Ephron the Hittite. It's fascinating. Do you know that the Bible was the only historical text that ever named the Hittites until very recently in history? Until the 1940s, it was believed that they were just made up. They didn't exist. There was no record of them archaeologically anywhere. And a man set out to systematically disprove, miracle by miracle, all the events described in the book of Acts. And as he did, he came upon the Hittites. Oops. This is one of those things that was used to mock the historicity of the Bible until it was discovered, the Hittite nation. So this, this Hittite Hittite field, we saw this. In Genesis 23, we read about this. Ephron wanted to give it to Abraham for free, but Abraham insisted on paying for it. And it's, it's striking to me how the Hittites all gather around and mourn alongside the people of God. And they grieve alongside, and they, they grieve when Abraham dies. They grieve Sarah's death, and that's where, that's where Abraham and Sarah are buried. That's, where, that, that, that's just this allotted burial place right there in the middle of the land of Canaan. Even though it's completely ruled by other nations over whom God is prophesying his coming wrath, they just believe God's going to give us that land one day, and so I want to be buried there. I want my bones to be placed there. This is, this is another example, too. Do you see this long funeral procession as the, as the, the Egyptians come alongside and they, they grieve alongside Joseph while he's mourning his father? The Hittites had their own faith. The Egyptians had their own faith, but all of them broke ranks because death was this thing that only the people of God know how to aptly handle. We've seen another breaking of ranks elsewhere in Scripture. Among the ranks of the Pharisees came two. The very council of Pharisees that were overseeing and who provided the legal impetus behind the crucifixion of Jesus broke ranks to see to it that Jesus was given a proper burial in the Gospels. One of them was Nicodemus. John chapter three, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a member of the very council that was persecuting Jesus. And he met with Jesus, but secretly, but quietly, but at night, so as not to be found out by his peers, It was to Nicodemus that Jesus spoke perhaps the most famous words of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not die but have everlasting life. That was Jesus speaking to Nicodemus and then Nicodemus would assume his place quietly amidst the ranks of the Pharisees. But then upon the death of Jesus, Nicodemus could contain himself no longer. He breaks ranks, defies his fellow Pharisees, and has this profound coming out moment as a believer in Jesus, defying the rest of the Pharisees. There's another Pharisee that breaks ranks right along with him. Joseph of Arimathea had purchased this tomb for his own family, for his own uses. But Joseph of Arimathea provides a tomb for Jesus just for the weekend. And then Nicodemus likewise provides the burial spices. They give an appropriate burial to Jesus. I love that. I love that. I love the way the Hittites broke ranks from their faith. I love the way that the Egyptians broke ranks from their faith. I love the way that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus broke ranks from the other Pharisees because a death has taken place and only God knows how to handle death. And so they step out of line. They have this coming out moment and they let it be known. I can't pretend like I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I love that beautiful act of defiance and I wonder how many other Pharisees are in the room quietly hiding among the ranks for now and you see this beautiful defiance and you feel this welling up within you, this fire that you can't contain anymore. I wanna encourage it. I wanna pour gasoline on that fire. Yeah, go rogue, Pharisee. Break ranks, ha, ha, ha. Defy your peers, come out. I can't hide the fact that I believe in Jesus anymore. Break ranks, just like the Hittites, just like some of these Egyptians, just like the Pharisees. When somebody dies, even pagan nations come around the people of God and mourn with them because only the one true God knows the way to deal with and face death. Only the one true God knows, only the one true God. Look at verse 33 of chapter 49. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. It seems like a logistical detail. And I wonder if it was difficult For Jacob to do that, because if you recall, he'd wrestled with God and his hip had been injured. But he's 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 sitting there on the bed, speaking his last words, blessing his sons, giving orders concerning his bones and where they are to be placed in the promised land, the land that God has promised to His people, to the nation, the great nation that will be born through we unlikely Hebrews. Place my bones there, and then. He lifts his feet up off the ground and they never touch the ground again. And his body assumes the final posture that it will in this life on earth. His ministry is done. And his deathbed faith proves his belief in the promises of God despite colossal evidence to the contrary. He believes that God's gonna give his people that land. And so, he speaks those words, gives those orders, and then assumes a more aerodynamic and ergonomic and easy-to-carry posture. I think it's there for a reason. I think that verse 33 serves a beautiful purpose. I think that it's, I think that it's, a, a, it's an awesome testimony. This is a legacy of believers in God, that with your last words, you would impress upon your children the truths of God, and salvation and the land that he's promised. Jacob was referring to a physical plot of dirt. In the New Testament era, our promised land is in heaven itself. In a congruous yet greater sense, the same promise that Joseph clung to, we may likewise believe upon, even with our dying breath. Did you see something in verse, in verse three of chapter 50? Did you notice the, the, the incongruity between the number of days. It says that it takes 40 days to embalm someone in the Egyptian method. But what does your Bible say? How, how, many, Bible, how many days does your Bible say that the Egyptians wept? 70. So even if the first 40 of those involved the embalming process, even if that's the case, they continued to mourn over Jacob's death for an additional month. Like they, they are deeply grieved alongside their beloved Joseph. It's possible that some of these Egyptians some of these Egyptians disavowed their belief in the Egyptian pagan gods and placed their belief in the one true God. It's possible, but the text doesn't say that. So we can't know for sure. The depth to which they grieved alongside Joseph is admirable. But an admiration for the truth of God is not enough. It is simultaneously admirable and inadequate. These Egyptians believed in a series of false gods. And if they would be saved in the Old Testament sense, they would adhere to the promises of Yahweh. They believe in this nation that was promised to come about through Abraham. And then as the law would come about, adhere to the law because everything in the law pointed forward to a Messiah who would one day come. And carry out the ritual sacrifices of the Old Testament law and a prophecy and a proclamation of their belief that God's going to do it one day. God's going to do it one day. One day the true lamb is going to come. One day we're ultimately all going to be saved. This lamb who is sacrificed is a symbol. One day the true lamb of God is going to come. I believe it and that's why I carry out these sacrifices. Unless people of the Old Testament era from pagan nations abandoned their false gods and placed their faith in Yahweh and adhered to the law that pointed forward to the Messiah, they were not saved. I find the great esteem that they had for Yahweh admirable and inadequate. And I I see the practice emulated today in which people merely have a high opinion of God. That's it. He's not Lord in their lives. They don't have the Holy Spirit of God. They consider him an admirable concept or they even see the moral rubric by which to define right from wrong as something that, that's a, you know, it fits their means. It, it, it provides a means to their ends. They get it. Okay, there's an authoritative source for morality. I'll draw upon that, but I don't actually believe in Jesus. I don't believe that God's the one true God. I'm just capitalizing upon the truths of Christianity. Are you doing that today? Would you be honest with yourself? Do you see your reflection in the Egyptian mourners who are part of the caravan going through to the land of Canaan? You merely have a high opinion of God, and that's it. Did you know that even demons believe there's one God? Even demons believe in the one true God, and they shudder at the thought. God, in the coming book of Exodus, as these Egyptians would turn on the people of Israel, as a new king in the beginning of the book of Exodus would take over who didn't know about Joseph, didn't know about Jacob, wasn't a part of this caravan of grievers, would turn upon and enslave the Hebrew race. Nonetheless, their numbers would flourish and grow. And then God would call them out of slavery, hence the title of the book of Exodus. That here, as these Egyptians, as they saw their gods mocked by the one true God, I hope that some of them likewise would abandon their faith in the Egyptian pantheon of false gods, place their belief in the one true God. It was on display. God himself makes an exclusive claim to the truth. God himself makes this exclusive claim. I know that's offensive, that's politically incorrect, but it's simply the truth of how God has revealed himself I don't make this claim on my own authority. I have zero authority. I, Jesse Campbell, have zero authority. God has all the authority, and it is God himself who makes this politically incorrect, somewhat offensive, rightfully closed-minded, exclusive claim to the truth itself. I'm not open-minded to other solutions. Once I learn that two plus two equals four, my mind is pretty closed on that one. It'd be foolish of me to be open to other appeals. Truth, by its very nature, is not unlike arithmetic. It is exclusive by nature. I admire the kind-heartedness of universalists who would say almost everything is true except for biblical orthodoxy. I, I get it. I know it seems ecumenical and it seems conciliatory of Baha'i to try to take several incongruous statements of belief and mash them together in a timeline and say that they're all equally granted truth. This is a logical fallacy in its own right. Taking things that are logically incongruous with each other and putting them as tantamount to one another in terms of their truthfulness. But God himself says this. Listen to what God says in Exodus 20. Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God makes his own exclusive claim to the truth. And in the New Testament, it is reiterated. Jesus himself, as we'll see, makes an exclusive claim to the truth, an audacious exclusive claim to the truth. Furthermore, God would elaborate upon this. Have you ever considered that the plagues of Egypt just seem arbitrary? Like, why frogs? Why is it raining frogs in Egypt? Like, is that is that, is that random? Okay, frogs. Or is there a purpose to it? You know, there's an Egyptian god named Hecate who had the head of a frog. And God was making a mockery of each of the Egyptian gods one at a time. Apparently, Hecate is not the head of the frogs at all. God says, I'm over the frogs. Have some frogs. <laughs> and Hecate was utterly impotent. Utterly unable to rein in all the frogs. The chief god of the pantheon of the Egyptian gods was Horus, also known as Ra, the sun god. And God demonstrates the utter impotence of Horus and shows himself to be the one true god through the plague of darkness. God says, it's my son, I created it. He is lord over every element claimed falsely by the Egyptian pantheon. And so... Plague by plague, God made a divine and rightful mockery of the false, puny, impotent gods whom the Egyptians worshipped and says there are no other gods before me. It is God who makes the audaciously exclusive claim to the truth. It is God alone who created the universe. It is God alone who gives us life. It is God alone whose nature serves as a rubric by which we understand goodness itself. It is God alone who makes a way for you and I to be saved. It is God alone who sits on the throne. He shares his glory with no one, and rightfully so. He makes the audacious audacious, exclusive claim to the truth If that offends you, you'll have the opportunity to take that up with him. I only hope that you'll do so as his child and acknowledge there that he rightfully is Lord. If you have been practicing syncretism, repent today. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Lord of lords, King of kings. Repent from idolatry. Give God the rightful place as the sole king on your life. Heart. There are no other gods before him. All of this was proclaimed and prophesied by his Bible that he would say rightfully so. Why has God done this? So that you would know that I alone am God, and above me there is no other. This is over and over again repeated thematically throughout the prophets who would proclaim exactly why God does what he does to the nation of Israel. It's why the nation of Israel exists at all, so that we would look upon what God said he would do, see how God did it, and know that he alone is God. So it is not I who makes this exclusive claim to the truth. It is repeatedly God himself in his word. Watch God continue to prove this truthfulness. It continued to prove his exclusive claim to the truth. Did you notice this in chapter, chapter 50, verses four through 11? Did you notice that there's never a point in this caravan, there's never a point at which the Hebrew people offer to share the truth with their Egyptian friends? Like, they, there's never an evangelistic gesture made on the part of Israel. Like, there's no evangelistic zeal on the part of the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. In fact, there's kind of the opposite In fact, there's one of the prophets of Israel who is sent to go to a city that is Gentile by nature over whom God has proclaimed his wrath's gonna be poured out and that prophet of Israel knows that God is merciful and that if he tells them this news, they might repent and God might relent in pouring out his wrath. And and this prophet doesn't want God to relent. He wants God to pour his wrath out. He wants to see the fireworks because he wasn't alive for Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he goes the opposite direction. And then we come upon the New Testament era and everything is radically different. Everything is radically changed. Through the course of Israel's history, we do see people from other nations come and assimilate in And become a part of the people of God, even extolled in the hall of faith, as it's called in Hebrews 11. People like Rahab from other ethnicities, other nations do become a part of the worship of the one true God of Yahweh over the course of time. But the New Testament era radically changes everything. Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter 2 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved is realized and spoken and evoked rightfully by Peter at the day of Pentecost. Now, instead, Jesus gives us this commissioning. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And then in the book of Acts, he opens up with the promise that Christians often overlook. He says this. Did you hear me, Christian? Listen to this. You will receive power. This is what Jesus said. You will receive power. Power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are called then to cross every cultural boundary, burst through every cultural wall with the love of the gospel and we see it happen as the story of the book of Acts, even because of persecution, the news of the gospel obliterates cultural boundaries, crosses ethnic lines, crosses oceans to meet us here today where we sit. The news of the gospel demands that we reach out, but you can see that there is no evangelistic fervor. The people of Israel are all too happy to abide in the comfort that comes from being God's elect nation. There is no evangelistic fervor. They will mourn alongside Egyptians, but there's no record in the text of them evangelizing them. These words, look at, look at, verses, look at verses 12 through 14 of chapter 50. These words are quoted later in scripture. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. These, these stipulations, this last will and testament regarding the placement of his bones, is quoted in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Everything which God establishes, everything which God promises, everything which God foreshadows and prophesies in Genesis is realized through the canon of Scripture, is fulfilled ultimately in Revelation. The Word of God is. Perfect and intricate, do you see it? The book of Hebrews shows and quotes from these exact words which we've read today. It was written countless centuries afterwards, but it fulfills it quite perfectly. This book of Hebrews was also the subject of the Bible quiz tournament that took place here. I came to visit everybody and see everybody who was playing uh, upward basketball and visit with some families and go room to room and listen in on some of the Bible quizzing and the book of Hebrews was the subject of the text. And when I came in and listened to one of the quizzes taking place, the score at the time was the students from another ministry, a score of 30, the students from Highlands Community Church, a score of 110. So it's just cold hard math, our students are better than other students. So if you have a student on the Bible quiz team, they can tell you all about this verse. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 20. Hebrews 11, verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. That's fascinating because that's not in the Genesis account. It must come only from the author of Hebrews thorough knowledge of culture of Israelite culture and the ceremony of bowing over one's staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Jacob believed the promises of God. He believed the promises of God, and they were his last words. He believed with his last breath that God would do exactly what God said he would do, and so he gives this direction. Joseph, likewise, with his dying breath with his last words, believes the promises of God. Now here's what's incredible to me. All this was originally just spoken over Abraham. God spoke directly to Abraham, made this promise in Genesis 12, and then reiterates it in Genesis 15, further in Genesis 17, finalizing in Genesis 22, and then tells Isaac that the same promise applies to him. Then Jacob doesn't receive that direct revelation from the Lord. In fact, Jacob wrestles with God and when he does speak the promise, it comes from Jacob's lips to God. Jacob reiterating the promises that were made to his grandfather and to him and to his father, reiterating it back to God. This promise is never spoken directly to Joseph. We see that Joseph is given by the spirit of God the ability to interpret dreams, but it's never iterated to him that way. He is believing entirely upon a promise that was made to his great-grandfather, Does anybody here in the room know anything that your great-grandfather ever said? Anybody quote great-grandpa? Furthermore, the relationship wasn't even that good. I'll bet, I'll bet that Isaac wouldn't let Jacob and Esau sit in crazy grandpa Abe's lap given the near-sacrifice incident. (laughs) Despite all of that, there's this promise that was made to crazy grandpa Abe Great-grandpa Abe heard from God, and that's all that Joseph has to go upon. But it's his last words. Proclamation of belief in that. Compare, in terms of word count, the number of words that Joseph had to go on to the number of words that we have to go on in regard to the promise of God. Compare what God promised to Joseph. A plot of land, okay? Dirt. To what we have in the greater culmination, the truer fulfillment of what was merely prophesied through this promised land of Israel. The greater truer promise is heaven itself, where moth and rust do not destroy, and thieves cannot break in and steal. That is our promised land. That's where our hope lies. You put my bones on the ground, and the day that you do, you tell my sons and my daughter to believe on Jesus and be saved, and I'll see them in the promised land. This is what Jacob believed, this is what Joseph believed, and we are more blessed than Jacob and Joseph many times over. We have received far more of the promises of God, the mysteries made known, the promises revealed, the name spoken, it's Jesus. Can you imagine how Joseph might have coveted our place in redemptive history just to have what I hold between my hands right now? The full mysteries of God revealed, the word of God made known. It is exquisite. It is exquisite. Now, look at verse 15 of chapter 50. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. That's quite reasonable actually. (laughs) That is a very rational fear. (laughs) That is a legitimate concern. But Joseph, foreshadowing Jesus, showed mercy and grace to his brothers. Joseph wasn't operating on an economy of fairness. He's operating on an economy of the grace of God. Operating upon the grace of God. No sane person could blame him for hating his brothers and doing to them exactly, exactly what they did to him. But Joseph didn't do that. Joseph didn't do that. Instead, he showed grace. Christian, have you been wronged by people? Have you been stabbed in the back by the people who were closest to you, who should have been the most gracious and kind to you? These people who should have been good to you, instead, they've wronged you. You have two options. One, you can take The rusty barbed wire ridden, rotten, decrepit fence post of bitterness, press it hard against your sternum. Let the rusted barbed wire pierce your heart. Let the decrepit wood penetrate your fingers, infect your hands, cling hard to this bitterness because it's your right. All the while it has no effect on that person. And let this diseased, infected, rusted bitterness eat you alive like a cancer. That's option A. <laughs> Would you like to hear option B? <laughs> Good. <laughs> option B is this Christian, you have been forgiven every last one of your sins. Every last act of unrighteousness that you committed before a holy, just judge of a God has been pardoned, expunged from your record, written away, thrown as far as the east is, from the west, not counted against you. You were deep in debt, but you've been made rich by the grace of God. You've been pardoned, forgiven, exalted, made forevermore clean and holy and glorified in heaven. One day counted as an heir alongside Jesus. You've been absolutely forgiven forgiven so forgive absolutely christian you've been forgiven everything so forgive everything show divine grace ludicrous love inexplicable forgiveness irrational grace forgive 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 forgive, christian forgive christian this is option b Colossians 3 is my dad's favorite chapter of the Bible. I can hear his voice, a southern, subtle, southern draw over the top of it, resonating on the, the cedar beams in our ceiling. I can hear his voice say these words. Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God and whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is option B. Any takers, Christians? Praise God. Forgive, forgive, forgive. Like Joseph forgave, may you forgive. These final words of the patriarchs resonate elsewhere in Scripture. We see these final words regarding the resting place of their bones reiterated in Exodus 13 and furthermore in Joshua 24, 32. Look at Exodus 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. In response to this perfect text that is prophecy fulfilled, I see numerous responses. Would you listen closely as the Holy Spirit of God lays them upon your heart? One is I consider the well-intentioned and admirable and empathetic Egyptians in in the train of mourners. May you have more than just a mere respect for the gospel. May Jesus be Lord in your life. Repent from syncretism. Repent from idolatry. It is God himself who makes that exclusive claim to the truth. So would you face his exclusive claim to the truth head on and receive his grace? Look at what Jesus says. Jesus reiterates in the New Testament that same exclusive claim to the truth. He says in John 14, six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Repent from syncretism. Repent from the polytheism of the Egyptian mourners. It is not enough to merely like God. Jesus must be Lord in your life to be saved. Then, as I see Joseph and Jacob both, with their dying breath, give their last will and testament regarding what is to be done with their bones, I see patently, clearly, twice over in the text, something that I must implore you of, likewise, if you have not established your own estate planning, would you do so in a way that honors the kingdom of God? If you feel so led to include Highlands Community Church in your last will, would you consult with Pastor Nick Dalgardner, our executive pastor about exactly that and then you might emulate Jacob and Joseph in your last will regarding your bones. And then when I see Joseph's radical forgiveness, I don't know how any of us can leave this room feeling justified in our bitterness. Every one of us must repent, we must forgive radically. We must forgive irrationally. We must show grace inexplicably because we have been shown grace. We've been forgiven everything. And so we must forgive everything. Don't you see how Joseph foreshadows Jesus here? Jesus comes on resurrection day, immediately goes to minister to his brothers. Joseph, likewise, ministers to his brothers. And all of this foreshadowing of Joseph's grace to his brothers just is a hint at the kind of grace that Jesus offers you right now. That you, likewise, though you've sinned against God, may be forgiven, may be forgiven and shown grace and mercy and redemption by the one on the throne. And his words just resonate for eternity to me. What the enemy, what you intended for evil, God has intended for good. That bloodied arrow that's in your chest, would you go before the Lord with me now in prayer? Would you take that bloodied arrow from your chest, that wound from your past, and would you give it to God and watch him place it in his bow and make war with it? So that the enemy, what he intended for evil, is used by God for beautiful good. Go before the Lord with me in prayer. God, I believe your word is true and I see the gospel foreshadowed through Joseph. God, thank you, thank you. This beautiful foundation for the New Testament gospel rests upon, Lord, it stands upon the foundation of the Old Testament truth. All the way back in the book of Genesis, you've made a way for people to be saved. God, we acknowledge you as the creator of the universe, the giver of life, the one who has established the way for people to be saved. And we're in this room today because of it. God, I lift up the people in this room who are being eaten alive by bitterness. May they look to the example of Joseph, who would have been fully rational and harboring bitterness, but instead he showed grace. Lord, I pray that every person in the sound of my voice, whether in person or digital, would forgive, 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 forgive. Lord, I lift up the people in this room who who were wounded by what the enemy intended for evil. God, would you take the bloodied arrows from our hearts? Would you place them in your bow and make war with them? Turn, Lord, our our past hurts into testimonies. Turn our pain into eternal purpose. Take our deepest, darkest recesses of our souls, the darkest things in our lives, the most painful experiences, and turn them into ways to minister the gospel to those who are in need. God, I lift up the person in this room skeptic of the gospel, but Lord, they see you foreshadowed in Joseph, and they see the truth of your word demonstrated, and they feel here and now the presence of your Holy Spirit pressing upon them, drawing on their hearts to be saved, just like the young Boeing engineer who was saved last night. Lord, would you continue through this text to save? I want to lift up and pray on behalf of those in this room, those digitally joining us, who are drawn upon by the Spirit of God, God, believe that you are the creator of the universe. I believe that you are the giver of life. I believe that you started in Genesis a redemptive plan that collides with me today. And it is through Jesus. I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that Jesus is the way. I believe that Jesus is the truth. I believe that Jesus is the life. And I know there's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Jesus. So here and now, drawn upon by the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God. I confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart in the resurrection of Jesus. Now God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.